Are you ready for some nosy bitches? Because this is about to get explicit. Hey, bitches. Hey, friends. Hey, Carla. We're back. We're back. <laughs> we missed you. Michael. Hi. Welcome back from your honeymoon. Thank you. Thank you. I'm a married man that survived my honeymoon, and I'm still married. I, so I feel like you 12 guys- days on a boat. It could okay. have been rocky. So I feel like regardless of the honeymoon, like surviving 12 days- on a boat with anyone is like true love. Only on a cruise ship can it happen where he can be in one dining facility and I can be on the complete opposite end of the ship. So like that is part of our romance is being able to be like, first of all, I get up at like 5.30 in the morning anyway, and then I just go do my thing. And he, you know, meanders out of the bedroom on a cruise ship around 10, 10.30, so. We are so it's, the same it's person. Perfect. It's perfect. It works <laughs> I completely. It's so good to have you back. And we are surrounded by five growing very fast kittens. Yeah. So if you hear random scratching, uh, clawing, scraping, meowing, meowing <laughs> just know that they are at, they're about eight and a half weeks, maybe nine weeks old now. And they are very, very boisterous. They're here on the show with us, and we're so glad to be back with you. How have you been, Carly? You've had some life yeah, I was going to say- You have a pool now. Yes, it's been very exciting. I have a pool now, so I'm going to be spending all my days underwater. It's been good. I'm really excited for the story that you have for us today, because this one, you talk about me getting back, and this one is very close to home yes. for us, right? I was so- going to say, this story is very local, and I know we have a lot of local listeners. This is definitely a hometown story for us. I also- did not know about this case. A good friend of mine, Kate, sent it to me and they just did a couple episodes on the Mark Wahlberg's Very Scary People yeah. about this case. And so I watched it and I was like, we have to talk about this case. This is just not a widely known story. No, even so, though it has like everything. I feel like Stefan from SNL, but l- legit, even when you were breaking down some of the basics, I'm like, Holy shit. Yeah. How do we not know about this? I And I have lived in Pensacola for a long time. Yeah. Absolutely had no idea. Had never heard of this case. Never heard anything about it. I talked to other people who lived in Pensacola for a long time. They had no idea about it. So I am excited because a lot of the episodes that we do are about... Because we have so many opinions over some of the crime cases we've heard about. Um, So this one is good because I think it'll be new for a lot of us. So let me paint the picture. I was going to say, take us on a journey, Carla. Take us on a journey. For those of you who are not local. So let me take you all the way back into the 80s, all right? Coastal town off the Gulf of Mexico, Pensacola, Florida. It's very much a beach town. It's known for its vast military bases. The Blue Angels reside here in the wintertime. And then most importantly about Pensacola is the sugar white sand. Pensacola is also known as the first settlement. It's a long-standing battle between St. Augustine and Pensacola. We have succumbed to letting them be the first city, but we actually were the first settlement. It's the city of five flags. We, right. We've had a lot of owners over the years. Sure have. So, to end up here in the U.S. of A. Yeah. So in the 1980s, Pensacola had its own Black Widow. It wasn't until some detectives started to piece the story together that the awful picture would really come into sight. I'm going to start in 1983 and then I'll take us back because I want to tell the story the way that the investigation kind of came and what led them to kind of figuring it out. So let's start our story. Pensacola, June 25th, 1983. So literally like Almost 40 years ago now, is that right? Oh, man, I was about to say 30. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. We're not that young anymore. Literally, like, (laughs) it was 40 years ago in three days. Wow. So when we're recording this. By 10 p.m., police arrived to an explosion downtown, just a block away from what is today's Palafox, which is the main street of downtown of Pensacola. And today there's a lot of like bars and restaurants. And so the explosion had taken place at an old restaurant, which is now closed, called the Driftwood. The cops cited that they were just 
blown away at the amount of debris and glass which had come from this car explosion. Also, they didn't have a lot of car explosions. So the fact that the police were saying like, hey, show up to this car explosion, everyone was like, what? A car exploded? That's just not something that happened in Pensacola normally. I don't know maybe where it would have been normal at, but it definitely wasn't normal for this sleepy beach town. Right. The victim had managed to live, get out of the car, and was immediately taken to the local hospital, Sacred Heart. How terrifying would that be? It's, that's horrifying. It's almost like a home invasion. It's into your private space where you think that you're safe and you're literally just doing something as innocent as turning your car on. We were in Belfast for part of our vacation on this, and I, I didn't know this until going on this trip, but there were... Up until recently, up until 1998, I think, so just not that long ago, they were literally having car bombings and public trash can bombings, all sorts of just crazy shenanigans happening because of some disagreements between, I'm way oversimplifying it, but because of some disagreements between the Protestants and the Catholics. You know, when something like that happens, there's a piece of innocence that is gone that you can't really get back. When you've seen something like a car bombing, like a trash can, the tour guide for the tour that we were on on the cruise, it was his brother, like, had literally just gotten out of his car. They're walking away, and the car that was, like, four or five cars behind his brother's blew up. It's just, it's just like, what, how do you recover from that? That's yeah, so crazy. It's it is, terrifying. The victim would be identified as John Gentry. As police begin their investigation, the hospital staff would begin to try and save John's life. Police began taking photographs and working with other agencies to go through the debris to try to understand what happened. First, trying to eliminate if it was something in the car that maybe had malfunctioned, like thinking, you know, had the, something gone wrong with the gas tank. And again, this is the 1980s, like could something, you know, just been wired wrong. But the car really seemed to be in good condition considering it had just went through a bomb which is weird to say, but I saw a picture of it. It literally looks like the top exploded. So like not- But out, everything internally yeah, was- Yeah, so not like out the front or like through the engine or like where the gas tank, the gas tank didn't explode. Interesting. Which is probably what saved his life. Yeah. Honestly, is the fact had- It didn't get to that fuel. Yeah, had the gas went off, that would have caused a whole different issue. So as they begin to piece everything together, they realize there are fragments, which must be type some type of like- homemade bomb or like dynamite and that it was definitely indeed foul play. They end up determining that there are two pieces of dynamite that were placed in the rear back seat. So behind the back seat, like where the trunk is, and it was wired to the rear light. So when the car turned on and the rear lights went on, you know, you turn the lights on, car turns on or whatever, boom, that's what happened. The other thing that they said actually helped John out was the fact that it was placed so far behind him. Had and to go through two layers of seat. Yeah, and, and it really did. The bomb exploded upward instead of going like through the front of him. Like had the bomb been placed right, or the pieces of dynamite been placed like right behind him where it would have like blown up a, against his back. That's right, less resistance. Yeah, this just went up, which obviously still causes a lot of damage, but it's also like that's what made such the mess. So like all the glass, the top part of the car, when you look at the pictures, the bottom of the car is really in a good condition. I would stop driving at that point. Like I know I'm harping on this, but can can you imagine how traumatized you would be by this car? Like you get in your SUV thinking everything is normal and all of a sudden it blows up. Oh my God. I, I'm now going to have to have you start my car <laughs> oh my when I leave tonight. Telling you, like, my heart has been beating since you described that. Like, that's just, it's really scary. Pelican Brief, there's a memory for that. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. So John Gentry, a little bit about him. So he was a local successful businessman who sold wallpaper. His family described him as wonderful and would give his shirt off his back to anyone. His niece and his nephew both shared stories and memories all these years later even described him as like their favorite uncle. They had a lot of love for him. They can still remember their mom waking them up and saying, hey, Uncle John is at the hospital and having to go. His whole family's there waiting to hear what happened. John Gentry was a Purple Heart Marine who had served in, in Vietnam. After the military returned to Pensacola, he owned a wallpaper company. And at that time in 1983, he was engaged to another businesswoman, Judy Buenanano. Buenano. Buenano. Yeah. So her last name is kind of weird to pronounce Buenano. and at different different places have pronounced a little bit. 
she will further be known. I honestly, I'm not super concerned about getting her last Judy, name. Judy B. She was there at the Driftwood restaurant with John, her fiance, and they were throwing her co-workers a dinner party. She owned a, a nail salon called Fingers and Face. Maybe they did like facials or makeup or something oh, like God. that. It's kind of a morbid yeah, <laughs> name for a shop. Though. Yeah, it is a weird name. <laughs> She had told John that she was pregnant, and at this time, Judy's 40 years old, and whole table, very excited. She asked John to leave to go get some champagne, and that's what he was doing. He was getting in his car to go get champagne when the explosion happened. I also was curious, because I was like, they're at a restaurant. Did the restaurant not serve champagne, or did they like want some special kind of champagne? Right. These are the things that I think about. <laughs> like, why did he have Hold to get on. up and leave to go get champagne? According to her, John wasn't even supposed to go that night, but at last minute had decided to join them for dinner. Her and the others stayed behind. And to them, like, nothing seemed out of sorts. Like, nothing, everything seemed very ordinary. So a little bit about John and Judy. Their businesses were right next to each other in the same plaza, town and country. It's very well-known plaza. It's been around in Pensacola for a very long time. And apparently they were very smitten with each other from the very beginning. People would describe Judy as a lavish, loud, love to spend money, a little ritzy. And John's family described her as nice and agreeable and that they both seem very much in love with each other. Oh, that's my guy. Oh, that's my girl. They never saw anything out of sorts between the two of them. She was always made up with a lot of makeup, and she very famously has these very, like, big, large, false eyelashes that she always wore. Get it, girl. Yeah. So she told people that she was heir to the Goodyear people, and um, she did seem very wealthy. She had a really nice house in Gulf Breeze, and Gulf Breeze is the connecting town to Pensacola, and it's what connects us to the beach, and so it is very well known that most of the real estate in that area is very expensive. Police and investigators, as they're starting to look at this, they really feel like whoever had done this, it was not a professional job. And it comes back to what I said before, because it was placed so far back. And the fact that the bomb went upwards instead of across means that you really can have the victim walk away still alive. Right. A professional would have put it right up against their seat. Where they made sure yeah. that person was at least going to be critically injured. That's yep. right. So they really felt like this was not a professional job. The other thing is they found very clear handprint on the trunk. Like imagine like reaching over, like curling your hand over the, the trunk where you're like bending over trying to reach into something. There's like clear as day handprint right there. Jeez. It takes about two days of recovery before they get a chance to talk to John to find out like who would possibly want to kill to them, wallpaper salesmen. And John really doesn't know anyone that he could have made upset. He discusses, you know, if he passed, his mom would get some of the company and his fiance Judy and him had a life insurance policy out for about 500000 So he mentions that lately he'd been having some health problems and that Judy, who had previously been a nurse before she became a businesswoman, that she had turned him into some vitamins to try to help him. And he begins to get sicker. He goes into the hospital, starts to get better, gets out, starts getting sicker again. And as the detectives are hearing this story, they're really starting to get concerned. They're thinking about this $500,000 life insurance policy, which is a lot of money. Into, that's a lot today, I was like, but like in the 80s? Yeah, in today's <clears throat> world, that's a big life insurance policy to have out on somebody. But if you're thinking like 1980 and you're just engaged to this person, like I can imagine like as people are building families and lives with people that have multiple children, you're wanting a big policy like that. But this is somebody who just got engaged. And then even like the sickness, I think something in their head started being like, you know what, let's really check out this lady, Judy. When especially if part of his claim is you go into the hospital, you get better, you come home and you start getting sicker again. At the very least, like I'm thinking there's something in your house that's making you sick. If it's not as nefarious as your wife, like something else is going on. Right. So good on them. So as the detectives are hearing this story, this really makes them want to like dig into Judy. And what they discover is really just like 
jaw dropping. I'm like, already getting such like a, a weird feeling about this. This is like just the beginning. Judy was <clears> born <throat> in 1943 in Quana, Texas. According to her, she grew up in a very abusive family. Her mom died when she was young, and she would later live with her dad and stepmom. So in retaliation of years of abuse as a teenager, she ended up burning both of her stepbrothers with hot grease and actually like fought her stepmom and her dad. And she gets sent away at that point. Like she gets arrested and gets sent away to, to finish growing up. And I think... I don't remember. I heard it was like a couple of months that she was sent away. And then she chose to stay there until she graduated high school. So while this is according to her, I think there are some like cousins and stuff that would substantiate that like really her upbringing was not very good. I also don't think that you would choose to stay at some other place that wasn't your home if you had any love for your home right you know what i mean like that at the very least it makes it sound like it wasn't the best yeah and when she graduated high school she later went on to be a nurse at like age 17. nursing requirements in the 1960s 70s were not the same but they are in 2023 but she did you know very smart hard working woman you can see that throughout her entire life that that really is something that resonated She got pregnant with a baby boy, Michael, and a short while later, she met James Goodyear, who is not Michael's father, but he would actually adopt her son, and they moved to Orlando. At the time, like, talk about Orlando being a completely different town. It was like a small orange grove town at this time. That's crazy to think about now. Yeah, so my dad is from Orlando, and it's funny because... They were there at the same time that, like, my dad was growing up there. But he would tell me all the time, like, how different it was compared to now. That, like, many times you could just travel down the road and smell, like, orange trees for miles. So just to divot for a second, my favorite ride at Epcot is Soaring. And because of the orange grove yes, smell, when yes. When you go over the – when, when oh, that part that in Soaring and you're going over the orange grove, I yes. always think of that memory that he told me about. And so – That's what I think about when I think about like old Orlando. But Orlando actually used to be a pretty big military presence back then too. So many new recruits went to boot camp for the Navy in Orlando. And her husband James was actually stationed at the Air Force Base, which is actually why my dad was in Orlando because my grandfather was in the Air Force and they were stationed there. It actually made me wish I could call my mama and ask her about this time period. James was stationed there at the Air Force Base and actually that base later turned into what's now known as the Orlando Airport. After they moved there with Michael, her and James got pregnant with two more kids, James and Kimberly. James would be sent to Vietnam while of course Judy and the children would stay behind in Orlando. Just to time period check us, he returned to Orlando from Vietnam in 1971. Now we're into the 70s in Orlando. Actually, I think that's the same year that Disney World was opened. I think it's definitely in the 70s. I I had 72 in my head, but it's 71, but it's right around that. It's right around that time frame. Part of being in the military when you go off to do some type of excursion, especially going off to war, when you come back, the military makes you go through some type of checkup with a doctor. Make sure that you're good before they release you for your time off. Makes sense. And James would come home, and within just a couple of weeks, he would become very sick. He would be hallucinating, vomiting, very weak. And the military was confused, scratching their head, because when he had left them, he was normal. And then now all of a sudden, he's very sick. And the doctors really did not understand what was wrong with him. And so really within weeks, James would die of some mysterious illness. I think they ended up writing it off as heart failure, but they really had no idea. And it would be ruled as natural. He passed on September 16th, which is just three months after returning home from war. Oh my God. Yeah. Judy would tell people that he died from chemicals that was used in Vietnam. And I mean, okay, from an outsider's point of view, like... The military was definitely involved in nasty chemicals, germs. Vietnam was a very different country. It was a a whole different world. And a very contentious war. Right. So, all right. I I, I can kind of get there. I can see that. Like, sure. I, I could let it slide. 
So, and of course, since he but was- But then a- how did he clear the doctors, though? Yeah, it's just weird that he came back healthy and then got sick. Like, if he would have come back sick, then I think you can explain away. But like, you know, I mean- Especially with the value of hindsight. Yeah. That involved Judy, like, all of a sudden he was good. And when he went to the hospital and then not. Like, it's right. just like, ah, uh, Yeah. So because he was enlisted in the Air Force, her and the children got compensated for his life with a $100,000 life insurance claim. In the 70s. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of money. Because I want to think my my grandparents had a really nice house there in Orlando. And I can't remember how much, but I want to think maybe they paid like 30000 or something like that for it. But houses where you could have bought three houses in the 70s for $100,000. The military took very well care of their families when you had an enlisted member who passed. What happens next is really crazy. The house where Judy and the kids were living in catches on fire and they collect now another $90,000 in house insurance. So $190,000 in 1970 is a lot of money to restart your new life. Judy and the three kids moved to Pensacola. Jeez. The value of that money is three times basically what it is. No, eight times what it was back then. So like $100,000 then is $800,000 today. Oh, I completely so believe that. So between the two of those, $1.5 million-ish in today's currency. Yeah, so she, I mean, I, she really got the opportunity. Yeah, I was going to say that she really got the opportunity. And you think she's young at this point in time. Oh, that's a lot of money for not a young person. But yeah. damn, like, yeah, she, uh-huh. So her and the three kids moved to Pensacola. In Pensacola, she would meet Bobby Joe Morris. Bobby is originally from Bruton, Alabama, which is about an hour away from Pensacola. And they would go on to date for a few years while living together. They never got married. After a few years, Bobby actually moved to Trinidad, Colorado, and there are some rumors that maybe Bobby was looking to get away from her. Little did Bobby know that while he was working in Colorado, tragedy would yet once again strike Judy. Like, she just had, you know, bad luck chalk. And there would be a second house that would catch on fire. So I don't know if this, like, lady needs to clean out her dryer vents or what. (laughs) Right? But... My husband is absolutely paranoid about a house catching on fire. Like, we don't run the dryer at night. We don't run the dryer when we leave. We don't leave candles burning. He doesn't even allow to, like, the Febreze plugins to set, like, big firebug happening at my house. <laughs> so the fact that she's had two house fires really in a matter of, like, five years. Dear goodness. And I'm surprised that somebody didn't catch on to this. Well, it's just so outrageous, though. Like, even if you had the thought, you'd be like, surely not. Like, surely this person, because it's their house, too. Like, you're not just risking your family's life. You're risking yours, too, right? Like, so that's my thought is, like, even if I had that thought back then, I'd be like, surely not. Surely that's not even reasonable to think. So what's weird is when the fire investigators are there, the fire seemed really contained to like one section of the garage. I bet it did. And not the entire house. But for some reason, she did get an insurance claim on on the entire house, even though the fire investigator was like, there was not smoke damage in anywhere else in that house. I don't know what insurance companies did at that point. But anyways, she gets another insurance claim. She takes this money and decides to follow Bobby Morris to Colorado and ends up going out there to move in with him. Jeez. Well, lo and behold, within weeks, Bobby would begin to experience very similar symptoms to Judy's first husband, James. Vomiting, out of it, lethargic. So when Judy takes Bobby to the hospital, she tells the doctors and the nurses there that Bobby's a very heavy drinker and that this is the reason. If you can imagine like a loved one bringing someone in who's very sick and the hospital's trying to treat them and they're like, listen, He's a very heavy drinker. Yeah. So like just know that going into some of the things that you're seeing or stuff like that. I'm sure not that it would change how they would treat him by by any means, but maybe that starts to explain why he's sick. And maybe that's the only explanation that you need. Yeah. So he's there for about a week and he does start to get better. The hospital releasing him thinking like he should be able to make a full recovery. And within three days, he passes out. 
They rush him to the hospital, but at this point, there is nothing that the hospital can do, and he passes. And while the hospital is suspicious because he got better while he was there in the hospital, and then he went home, and then now he's dead. And while they were suspicious, like nobody said anything, there was no charges brought. The only thing that happens is Judy wanted to have Bobby cremated right away. But Bobby's mother was his legal next of kin because Bobby and Judy were not married. And she says, absolutely not. You are not going to have him cremated. And she has his remains brought home to Bruton, Alabama. And he's buried there at one of the cemeteries. So time check, this is January 1978. So this is about five years before the car bombing happens. Okay. So after Bobby passes, guess what? Judy had another $30,000 from a life insurance check, and that takes her and the kids back to Pensacola. And this is actually when she buys the house in Gulf Breeze, is returning from Colorado. I don't know how much it was from the house in Pensacola that caught on fire, but then she collects another $30,000 from the life insurance from Bobby Joe, comes to Gulf Breeze. The next really mysterious thing the police start digging into that really raise and raise their eyebrows and I think really solidifies that there is something wrong with Judy would involve her son Michael so friends would describe Michael as very quiet and they said and I I actually even hate saying this but it was reported that he wasn't very bright or that he had very low intelligence and I hate saying that because there wasn't a lot of people who really knew Michael and he was a human being who like lived a life and he deserves a lot of respect like even if he didn't have this super high IQ, I just wish there was like more to talk about him. Yeah, I also don't think that we were particularly kind to those kinds of right. things back then. We had a less understanding of of what that meant and also the quality of life that individuals that do have some differences in how they perceive the world can live. Like yeah. they can live very fulfilling lives. Honestly, looking back on this story, I would bet that he actually was intelligent. He just probably wasn't book smart into the ways that other people are and he just was a quiet kid he probably did have some type of a learning disability sure but he really did have like motivation and you'll see this later in his life to like better his life so judy would tell people that michael was a lot of problems and he was always in trouble she would even refer to him as her stepson rather than her son and that's messed up it's really horrible and you have to think like Judy was this larger-than-life character who, like, loved to be involved in the finer things in life. And here was this son who was said to have this lo- this learning disability and, like, um, quote, emotional problems. It's kind of like what they bucketed everything. So she would send Michael away to different schools or programs so that they could deal with him and that she could just focus on her other children. For all the people in this story... Michael is the one that I think my heart breaks for the most. After high school, like I said, he really wants to better himself. He wants to build a life for him. He enlists in the service. His adopted father, James, was in the service. Yeah. And so, you know, you think that maybe like this is an ode to him. And so he joins the army and goes off to boot camp. After he gets done with boot camp, he comes home. Before you go to your next training, normally you can come home for like 30 days, a couple of weeks. And comes home and Michael begins to get very sick and he goes to seek the treatment and this is now in the very early 80s so like 1980 the doctors are able to actually diagnose him this time with arsenic poisoning and so arsenic poisoning over time can cause issues with your organs and even with your limbs now it's noteworthy to say that michael's specific job in the army was working with water purification in this like water purification lab here's this kid who's quote unquote not very bright but working in this water purification doing chemistry every day this is fine right and actually that's so it's interesting how he has these like odes to this these men in his life you know joins from his adopted father joins the army Bobby Joe Morris also was involved in water purification. So like maybe that's part of why he chose that job. And there is arsenic involved in this water purification lab. And so they feel like really this was just an accident and that, you know, the arsenic could have been caused by some type of work environment. 
Well, he doesn't die from the arsenic. However, though, he is too sick to stay in the army and his legs become almost atrophied. It's both his legs and one of his arms. It essentially kills the muscle in his limbs. And so he has to wear these big, heavy, like 20 pound braces. Almost think about what's that Tom Hanks movie? Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. Yeah. Yeah. Now, obviously he was younger, but kind of it's those types of braces. He can barely walk and he has to return home to live with Judy and his other siblings. Jesus. The day after Michael comes home, Judy decides that they're going to have a family day out in the sun and they go to what we call East River, which is in Milton. That's close to another beach community in Navarre. So Navarre and Milton at this time are very remote. The really cool thing about this area of Florida is there are beaches, but there's also like rivers and springs and families like to go kayaking or canoeing or honestly, we call it just like floating down the river and get in an inner tube and float down the river. She had all three kids and they decide to go canoeing. Let me just paint the picture. Here is Michael, who is has these 20 pound leg braces. And you come up with this idea that you're going to take him kayaking, or not kayaking, excuse me, canoeing, canoeing. which to me is worse. Yes, it is. Because a, I've been in plenty of canoes that, that go over. That's right. Kayaks are a little bit harder. That's right. To, to go turn over. over. That's right. Um, but a, a canoe, you're for sure going to go over in. She straps him to a lawn chair that she puts in the middle of this canoe. Now, I'm not sure who decides to take anybody who literally cannot use their legs or one of their arms, who essentially is a paraplegic. In water. In water where he cannot swim. And even if he was just like, like laid into the canoe... You have 20-pound braces who is literally going to sink him to the bottom if he were to fall over. I'm not sure, like, what made anyone think that was a good idea. Right. Even if everything is on the up and up about this situation, like, that is just such... I'm imagining a scenario where she's, like, trying to play that as, like, I didn't want to leave him out of it. But it's like, but then why this thing? Right. Why, why specifically... Take him bowling. <laughs> Thank like you. at this point, take him to the skating ring and watch, watch y'all skate. That's... Like I can think of a million things besides taking cool... him on a body of water. Take him to the movies. Do you think he knew getting like I like I'm trying to go back into his mindset of this and like you have to be sitting there thinking, oh, this is not going to go well. Like if I'm him, I wonder if he had started to put together. Oh, that's a great thought. Like. This is not going to end well for me. Or just like even that combined with some of her other odd behavior, the the arsenic thing, like that had to be weird to him too. I'm sitting there, if I'm sick with anything, first of all, I suddenly become a board certified physician and I think I've gone to medical school and I can diagnose it all. But my point being, like I do think through, I'm like, if I get a cold, what scenarios was I in recently where I could have gotten that cold? You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm thinking through all of that. So if he's starting to back up, I just... Uh, that's a really Carla. good... Like, let's pull, the, let's pull the thread at this for a second because I think that's a good thought. And you have to think it's very well known by everyone that she does not like this child. Yeah. And here is this... He's now a young man, 19 years old. Yeah. And here is his mom who, like, showed up at the hospital and is like taking care of him and wants to go have this good day. So you're right. He's either thinking like this, she's trying to kill me. Or he's thinking, oh my gosh, she's finally showing me this attention and love that I've wanted my whole life. Maybe and nearly losing my life jarred her. Right. Yeah. Now I'm finally getting this attention from my mom. Oh, that's and even like, worse. <laughs> sorry. I had, Carla. To go, I had to go down that. Uh, okay, so, continue. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is, this is a river. This is not like a little stream. This is a big river, like winding. It is extremely deep. First of all, there are alligators in these rivers. I think people, you know, if you think about like a stream or like a little creek, this is not a little creek. Of course, you know, not being in the canoe for very long, tragedy would once again strike and the canoe would turn over. So Judy would recall a few stories, but one of the stories is that the canoe, that there was a snake that jumped into the canoe and trying to get the snake out, it flipped over. 
And she said that when it flipped over, her other son was in the canoe and she was very concerned about him because he was upside down and seemed to be not breathing. And so she immediately went to him and focused her attention on him and was trying to get him breathing. A boater had come up and was trying to help them and literally takes her and the other boy all the way to shore before she's like, oh, where's Michael? And it, as a mom, of course, like there's a million pieces of this story that like just are, do not play out in reality. But as a mom, I can understand you have two children, you flipped over, you see one is clearly in trouble. You're focusing your, focus your attention. Goes, yeah, yep. right there. You're trying to get one to breathe while you're scanning the water, maybe looking for the other, whatever. But no way am I getting on that boat and leaving and, leaving and going to shore no, before I have found my other child. There isn't a parent in this world who would not drown finding that other child before they go to shore. It's I, just, that's, that is the unrealistic part. I literally just had the thought of like for my Nildren or for like if if I was babysitting for a friend, you best believe I am drowning before right. I come back without that child. No. Sorry. Yeah, like, a, yeah. A, a 100%. Oh my God. She just says, I never saw Michael and literally she just left him there. Water rescuers come and begin searching the river this is such a fucked up story, I know, Carla. I know. It really, it really is. This woman left her, oh my God. The water rescuers, they get there and they're like, what? You just left your child? And then the other thing is they're like, you strapped this kid to a, and I a say, lawn chair? To a lawn chair. And they're like, first of all, like, that would tell you that like you put something in the middle of a canoe that's above the center of gravity and the canoe is going to flip over. They're like, that's what, I mean, like common sense would tell you that. That's why I said the thing about the kayak. I personally do not like to canoe because I have flipped over in canoes more It's too times. easy. Yeah, more times than not. But like hitting like a twig or part of a tree branch in the water. In a kayak, I have much more, I'm much more it's in control. It's a flat bottom like yeah. you're in. Yeah. Plus the other thing is a kayak, like I can be in there by myself and I don't need any other moron trying to tip the boat or do something stupid and I end up upside down in the gator infested water. Last time no, thank you. Thomas and I went on a canoe, like at one point in the trip and I'm sitting up front, I'm like, man, this got a little bit harder. And I look back and he's legit like sunning himself and smiling like he's so proud of himself. That's my problem with canoes. Yeah. I don't want to share... Right. A canoe, because I invariably end up doing the <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to be eaten by a gator, so I really don't want to be in the water. Like, I don't want to be in the Especially middle of the river. strapped to a launch. I oh, just, it, there's, oh God, Carla. It's just horrible. He knew, like, I'm going back to it. I'm telling you, Michael knew. He was just like, this is the day I die. Oh, my God. So the rescuers go out there, and they do find the body in the middle of the river. And to them, that story about the snake jumping in like in the middle of the river just didn't yeah, make sense it like, you were close to a shore they said also due to the weight of the body especially given his braces the body would just fall wherever it was at it would just it would go down and so it's not like if you were closer to the shore and then drift it, it would not drift into the middle of the river right it just didn't make sense and they were very suspicious but i think just not enough suspicion i think that's the problem is that and maybe this really is something more so at that time. Like people just were not asking enough questions. And maybe it's just because it was so uncomfortable because this is – you don't want to assume that like someone didn't do enough. And again, like we've talked about with Casey Anthony, like drowning is one of the number one reasons that children in the state of Florida die. Maybe they don't want to come down on this mom who just lost their child. On the flip side, like Judy is very – charismatic like we're looking at her from hindsight and and putting all of this stuff together but she's a very charismatic she's wealthy i think for them it was very easy to go along with this story of what she was telling people so i don't want to look too harshly on some of the people i think who probably could have intervened if they would have pushed a little further especially with this case i think i would add to it too that we're very used to looking at these kinds of things through the lens of knowing so much about the world. We're constantly connected. We have yeah. the internet. We can hear, we can read a story from Bangladesh. Mother drowns child in river with giant cobra. If that happens anywhere in the world, like we're going to read about it. Back in the 80s, that wasn't true. It's more than the, yes, I think very uncomfortable conversation. It's we're not as exposed to this level of crazy. So I think that, I, again, they pr 
someone had to have had the thought, did this woman do it? And then as quickly as they had it, they were like, surely not. Because we we probably just weren't as aware that crazy, evil people exist. Well, and I think probably some of the people that were closest to her realized that, like, Michael was not her favorite child. Yeah. Maybe those people had heavier suspicions where if you're, like, a stranger coming on the situation, you're not realizing the history of their relationship. 100%. Like, and piecing it together in hindsight. So, yeah. a little tidbit, of course there was an insurance policy on Michael because why wouldn't there be? Later, a retired DA would investigate the policy and notice that Michael always spelled his name wrong. But yet, on the insurance policy, his name was spelled correct, which led them to believe that the paperwork was forged. He passed on March 13, 1980. Again, three years later, this would now bring us up to the current time of John Gentry in the 1983 attempt on his life with this car bombing. As the investigators begin to look at all the tragedy that we just talked about, they are very suspicious they begin to look at this insurance paperwork and it becomes known that she had multiple policies on all of the men, including her son, which was about 125000 that she received then for Michael. Now they felt like they had motive. Judy was killing for money. I mean, at this point, we are well over $2 million in today's current. Literally millions of dollars from killing people she supposedly loved. Michael, this next fact is going to get you. So even it was found out that not only did she have policies for the men in her life, but she also had one on her best friend, her best friend's two sisters, and even her best friend's dad. She was literally funding her life off the death of her loved ones. I don't know like what world, like you and I have a podcast together. Like we have a business together Hopefully one day that will make us millions. We're just going to keep putting that in there. That's right. We're going to keep keep wishing it into existence. I don't know that there's a day that I would ever put a life insurance policy on you. But like, honestly, now that we're talking about it. <laughs> you so <laughs> tell. <laughs> Michael, after this, let's let's chit chat about how much. <laughs> we, we legit though, no, I mean, to your point, like we even got weird about having one on each other like me and Thomas. And we do, but it just, it's a weird conversation to have if you really care about that person. Because I never want to imagine the day where I have to think about that. I can't. No, like I have policies on the children, but I have very small policies that would cover their expenses expenses if if something were to happen. And maybe for, you know, some time off of work or whatever that would look like. But it's a very small policy. And there was no way I was going to put anything more. Because, right, it just feels weird it feels ugly but yeah she had all of these policies oh my on out of thing it is interesting that john gentry was going to be her biggest payoff had the bombing worked out because that was a five hundred thousand dollar insurance claim so like she we're talking about really up in the stakes as they began to investigate they would need to exhume the bodies to see if the other victims had arsenic poisoning like her son Arsenic poison wasn't a thing that they like normally tested for. I'm shocked that the military tested Michael for arsenic poisoning and confirmed that like, yes, you're being poisoned. It may have been because he worked around it or just may have been that somebody had told me once that like certain poisonings you don't pick up on unless you've had experience seeing that type of patient before that you're like, hey, I've seen this before. And this like just looking at the symptoms of this too, this could so easily be the flu right causes nausea diarrhea cough chest pain sore throat like you have a cold that's what you have the pathologist said that like well you know i think like for ray our true crime brain somebody goes in we're like oh they've been poisoned is it arsenic what are they poisoned that's right right? but that's just not what that's not what a hospital my daughter was sick the other week. Like not once were they like, was she poisoned? Of course not. Because they're choosing, like, the, not the path that of least resistance. The most, often the simplest explanation right. is the right one. They're right? looking for, like, appendicitis. That's they're, it. they're not looking for, you know, something, really, which is something crazy. You don't see that very often. James Goodyear would be the first person who would be exhumed. And they were really worried because at this point it had been, been 20 years since he had passed. Well, James Goodyear was actually very, very well preserved because of the amount of arsenic that was in his body. The medical examiner could easily test him and prove that he did, in fact, have arsenic poisoning. Then his death was then reclassified as a homicide. 
Next, Bobby Joe Morris, good thing she wasn't able to get him cremated. He would be next to be exhumed. They said that he had like 12 times the fatal amount of arsenic poisoning. It could have killed 12 people, the amount of arsenic that he had in his system. They would go to look through her home and at her business, and they would find wiring and the chemicals that were responsible for the dynamite and the car bombing. I'll remind you guys, so John Gentry, of course, had brought up that he had been sick and then got better, and that she'd given, you know, she was a nurse before, and she'd given him these, I think they called them, like, Vito C, something like that, but essentially they were supposed to be, like, these hyped-up vitamin C. Now... He had actually saved them because he even thought to himself, like, I think these vitamins are making me sick. Like, maybe I'll go get them tested or something like that. Never had, but just kind of thrown them to the side. He had them. Now, they were actually poisoned, but it wasn't arsenic, but it was some type of poison, but not arsenic this round. And maybe that's what happened is this, it wasn't killing him fast enough. So she decided to do the car bombing. In July, just about a month later, she would be arrested for the attempted murder of John Gentry for poisoning him. Then after that, she would be bonded for 50000 They immediately arrested her, which I think is brilliant on the police. Instead of arresting her all at one time for everything, they'd arrest her one at a time. So she'd have to pay $50,000 to get bonded out. Then they arrest her again. She has to go back to jail. If she wanted to get out, she'd have to be bonded again for the murder of her son. According to investigators and people who knew her, Judy was a frequent liar. So she would make up stories about her background, about her family, like why people had died. She would lie about her education and her accolades. She said she had a PhD and would have people like refer to her as doctor. I said before, too, that she had said that she was the heir of the Goodyear She wasn't. She would say that she was like a distant relative of Geronimo. And even her last name was something that she changed after she had been married. Even that was made up. She began her court case and said, like, I'm completely innocent. I did not and would not kill my son. Pathology could prove that her son's poisoning happened at the same time that he was at home. They talked about like lines on the fingers and that you could tell like how long the person had been ingesting arsenic and that it was timed. I mean, he'd been in boot camp and then he'd been home for a few weeks. So it was very easily tied back. If people had been looking, there were some very obvious things. But again, no one is looking that a mom is doing this. I even had the thought after you said some of this, remember he had some sort of, they think developmental or disability or learning disability. I wondered, was this the first time she even tried to kill him? Like, oh, it's a very good point. Had she poisoned him as a younger child? You know, even like Munchausen's kind of thing, even if it wasn't yet for the money, for the attention to have a sickly child, and then, you know, later she's paying the piper and now, you know, feeling, air quotes, because it's so gross, but burdened by this right. child. And so we'll kill him good this time. Like, I just don't know what to think of you now, Judy. Like, it's not, it's nothing good. <laughs> I'm suspicious. No, it's, it really is. So April of 1984, the Black Widow case began in Pensacola. She told the press this was a witch hunt and she was nothing but a good mother. A jury of 10 men and two women. Court case lasted nine days. She was sentenced for life without parole for 25 years. One of the shocking moments was there was an investigator who like waved by at the end of the court case And it enraged Judy, and she tried to come across the room at him. And there was, like, a newspaper that snapped a picture of her, and they talked really, like, the facade was dropping. Like, you could really see, like, her anger, like, the the show that she had been putting on for people, she just couldn't hold it back anymore. That was for her son that she got 25 years, life without parole. October 15th. 1984, she was in court for the attempt of murder of John Gentry, both for poisoning him and for the bombing. She had apparently told people that John had cancer and she was going to take everyone on a cruise, but that John wouldn't be there because he was terminal from his cancer. Well, in reality, she was going to have killed him off by then. And she was already planning what trip she would take with his life insurance money. Oh my God. She, of course, was convicted again, and so they added 12 years to her sentence. So at that point, we're at 37 years. years. Yep. Which is really, at this point, starting to be like the rest of her life. Right. Yeah. Because she's 40 
at the time that she gets arrested. The next would be the trial for her husband's murder in Orlando, and this time they would seek the death penalty. In a video of her court appearance, she came off as very insincere, like almost cold and very dismissive. She would laugh and roll her eyes like she was like above everything. And it would come out that she was very annoyed by her husband, James, and that he wasn't very much help. She even made jokes to another housewife. Oh, don't divorce your spouse. You can just kill him. My God. She just, I mean, she cracks me up. She actually got up and testified in her, in this case and got on the stand and said like they had a very good marriage and that she was innocent. I feel like was a very famous line in this case. I really liked the prosecutor on this case is she would say like, this was all just bad luck. This wasn't anything that I did on purpose. Tragedy just seemed to follow me. I have this dark cloud around me. It's not that, it's just bad luck. Well, the prosecutor in his closing argument would say that he would agree that, and you know, he would agree with her and he would point her out to the jury telling him that there was the bad luck right there. Be like, yes, absolutely, there she is. She was their bad luck. In 1985, she would be convicted once again for the murder of her first husband, James Goodyear, and the judge would give her the death penalty, which was electrocution in the state of Florida Um, at that time. Old Sparky. Old Sparky. This is what is crazy. Like, we talk about trials that people are sitting in jail forever. Like, in this day, right now, she was arrested in 1983. She had been tried three times by 1985 she'd had three court cases that's how swift justice moved back then now it would be years before you would have that especially like a death penalty case you would never get that would be pushed and delayed she was electrocuted like yes it happened so due to being convicted with the death penalty she was never charged for the death of Bobby Joe Morris because that would have been handled by Colorado because that's actually where he was really murdered was in Colorado. Okay. Even in the end, Judy continued to claim her innocence. In her last interview before she was set to death, she said she wanted to be remembered as a good mother. Oh my fucking goodness. So March 30th, ah. 1998 in Stark, Florida, which Stark, Florida is kind of between Gainesville and Jacksonville. Judy was executed by electric chair, and she actually was the first woman in 150 years in the state of Florida that would be electrocuted. And I'll just leave it at that. This date would have also been her son Michael's 37th birthday. All the emotions. It has everything. It has dynamite. It has arsenic. It doesn't have ninjas. (laughs) I just... Your own child? Having policies on your friend and your friend's sisters? Like... And their father. Like, if... if, Oh, my God. If I were to find out that one of my friends who, a murderer, had put life insurance policies on myself, my family members, they probably would need to be in jail. Because to, to me, that meant that, like, you might have something to do with them dying. Like, maybe a plan was that you were going to hurt one of my family members. That's right. There was no stopping her. And the police and the investigators really felt like had she not failed in killing John Gentry, that she would have who knows how many more people. Because at that time, they really talked about this too, that insurance claims, like we didn't have the internet at this point in time. The FBI and the police were not even talking to each other over state lines. So insurance companies definitely were not. Where today, all of that is looped together. I mean, you cannot even run a stoplight without every insurance company in the country raising your insurance rate. No matter where you're going to go, they're going to know that you ran the stop sign. So here is this person who has all these, she was just going to different insurance companies and pulling out these policies. And they were paying it out. Literally had the thought, like, this is why their policies are so ridiculous for insurance and why like for the slightest little thing you can get kicked off of something because they have people doing this shit yeah they did change like this is part of why they talked about it too like this is part of like why this wouldn't happen today because so many so many things have changed over the years and they've implemented all of these rules but it is crazy because so much of this case, even though it happened here in Pensacola, but I had never heard about it. No. And it's horrible. Did she work besides this once some of this stuff started going? Like when she started having kids and was getting married? Yeah, like she, she owned that. I, 
I oh, think that's right. That's right. She had stopped being a nurse. That's right. You know, for that time period. That's what was in my head. But, but she was she was owning different businesses and stuff like that. So you know, that's the other thing is like she could have went on to be a very successful person, but for whatever reason, I guess because she realized that she was getting all of this money and it was just like the simpler way to do things. I just again at the end of it, two point five, maybe even three million dollars that she got out of it. That's a lot of money on top of whatever you were making off of your businesses. But at the cost of what? Like another thought that went through my head is like, what is having all that money worth if you don't have anyone that you love to share it with? Or was she so twisted at the end there? Like her other two sons, did she actually love them or have whatever in her mind equated to love for them? At what point does that stop? It's fascinating and heartbreaking and so weird. Yeah, I think... I think it it is very sane of any person, of course, you know, to commit any type of murder, but then to do it kind of over and over again, but also then to do it to this child that you, and I know he's 19 years old, but it's still your child that you like loved and have raised and that's, you're supposed to love unconditionally. It's just unfortunate because he was trying to live this whole different life. And all of these men too, I mean, that everybody says they were great people. The other thing that I, if you like go back to the beginning when John Gentry was in the hospital and his family was recalling them to them, the facade, there was no, we were kind of suspicious about her. They were, we loved her. We thought she was great. We never would have thought. I think that says a lot to the character that she was playing to this outside world is that I'm this great person and built all these relationships within their family and their friends. And I guess she was very lavish with her coworkers, took them on dinners, cruises, like vacations, but then just had this part of her that would kill her own child. It's crazy, honestly. She's cuckoo for Cocoa Pops, or (laughs) was. Honestly, she didn't sit on death row for very long either, considering some people can sit on death row for 20 years. She only sat on death row for 13 years before she was electrocuted. I can't believe they went through with it, knowing that was 13 years after and that they still... I will say, if you're interested in this story, definitely check out The Very Scary People on ID, because it talks... all of the investigators. There's actually a Megan Sachs. So she's a criminologist. If you guys remember, she was the one who did the podcast on Melanie McGuire. And so she's really interesting. But it was a really very well done series. And that's a lot of the facts that we get for today's case of Judy. Judy B, man, from right here in Pensacola. I just... This one, like... People it's gonna sit with you. Up. It's like, gonna sit is, with you. That is so dark. <laughs> I literally would feel a measure more of sympathy for her if it had been strangers. Like I know that's still not okay, but it would have felt so much less personal. This was personal. Like you knew as you got into bed every night with your husband that you were poisoning him with the intent of killing him. Every night, Carla. Here, gonna slip some arsenic in your dinner. And then get in there. And even, like, after That's our, potential... That's a really slow clo- and painful way yes. to die, too. And, like, even after opportunities to course correct. Like, he gets put in the hospital. Like, now you could have the thought, I might be under suspicion now. But to keep going. Mm-hmm. The intentionality and the cruelty of it. Oh. And so it's interesting. I'm curious because I'm, I'm not sure where I feel about the death penalty. But... I definitely feel like there are very few cases where the death penalty is warranted. I will say with the amount of proof that this case presented itself. This feels like a dead ringer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I was wondering if you had any feelings about, because I know you don't really. I don't. I I have very complicated feelings about the death penalty. I don't think that you correct murder with more murder. Right. And I also think that it's free in many instances labor for the state have them build roads and clean up sidewalks and i know there's these complications with giving them an education and such but for me if there is any possibility of rehabilitating someone and them returning to a productive state in society there's this eternal optimist in me that wants that and there are just some cases where even me feeling that way very strongly. And it's really scary to think about a person like that walking around today. Yeah. That so flippantly, even these people that you're supposed to love, just treats life 
it's nothing. It's just a blank check. If you take it from someone, I don't know. I'm kind of glad she's gone. Yeah. So, you guys, we are back with a bang. So, I hope you guys oh, enjoyed. Dynamite. <laughs> oh, yes. Right. <laughs> it has everything. Yeah. So, we switched from kitties to now sleeping puppy uh, puppy dogs. They stressed me out so much less. Plus, the acoustics in here were kind of nice. Yeah, this is yeah. kind of working out. So, thank you, guys. and We we'll, missed you. Yes. We're so excited. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Hey, you made it to the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. And I know that we've given a lot of our unsolicited feedback But at the end of the day, it's also important that we remember to stay kind, stay curious, but of course, stay nosy, bitches. bitches.